Chapter Twelve of the Marrow of Tradition. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Waddell Chestnut. Chapter Twelve. Another Southern Product. One morning, shortly after the opening of the hospital, while Dr. Miller was making his early rounds, a new patient walked in with a smile on his face and a broken arm hanging limply by his side. Miller recognized in him a black giant by the name of Josh Green, who for many years had worked on the docks for Miller's father, and simultaneously identified him as the dust-begrimed negro who had stolen a ride to Wellington on the trucks of a passenger car. "'Well, Josh,' asked the doctor, as he examined the fracture, "'how did you get this? Been fighting again?' "'No, sir. I don't suppose you could hardly call it a fight. One of them dagoes off in a South American boat give me some of his jaw, and I give him a back answer, and here I is with a broken arm. He got hold of a belaying pen before I could hit him.' "'What became of the other man?' demanded Miller suspiciously. He perceived from the indifference with which Josh bore the manipulation of the fractured limb that such an accident need not have interfered seriously with the use of the remaining arm, and he knew that Josh had a reputation for absolute fearlessness. "'Let me see,' said Josh reflectively, "'if I can remember what did become of him. Oh, yes, I remember now. It took him to the marine hospital in the ambulance, cause his leg was broke, and I reckon something must have accidentally hit him in the jaw.' he was scattering teeth all the way along the street. I didn't want to kill the man, for he might have somebody depending on him, and I knows how that'd be to them. But no man can call me a damn low-down nigger and keep on enjoying good health right along. It was considerate of you to spare his life, said Miller dryly, but you'll hit the wrong man some day. These are bad times for bad negroes. You'll get into a quarrel with a white man, and at the end of it, there'll be a lynching or a funeral. You'd better be peaceable and endure a little injustice rather than run the risk of a sudden and violent death. I expects to die a violent death in a quarrel with a white man, replied Josh in a matter-of-fact tone, and furthermore, he's going to die at the same time, a little before. I've been taking my own time by killing him. I ain't been crowding a man, but I'll be ready after a while, and then he can look out. "'And I suppose you're merely keeping in practice "'on these other fellows who come your way. "'When I get your arm dressed, "'you'd better leave town to that fellow's boat sails. "'It may save you the expense of a trial "'in three months in the chain gang. "'But this talk about killing a man is all nonsense. "'What has any man in this town done to you "'that you should thirst for his blood?' "'Nah, sir, it ain't nonsense. "'It's straight solemn fact.' I'm going to kill that man as sure as I'm sitting in this chair, and ain't nobody can say I ain't got a right to kill him. Did you remember the Ku Klux? Yes, but I was a child at the time, and recollect very little about them. It is a page of history which most people are glad to forget. Yes, sir, I was a child, too, but I was right in it, and so I remembers more about it than you does. My mammy and daddy lived about ten miles from here, up the river. One night a crowd of white men come to our house and took my daddy out and shot him to death. 
and scared my mammy so she ain't been herself from that day to this. I wasn't more than ten years old at the time, and when my mammy see the white man coming, she told me to run. I hid in the bushes and seen the whole thing, and it was branded on my memory, sir, like a red-hot iron brands the skin. The white folks had masks on, but one of them fell off. He was the boss. He was the head man, and told the rest what to do. And I seen his face. It was a easy face to remember, and I swolled in, way down deep in my heart, little as I was, that some day or another I'd kill that man. I ain't never had no doubt about it. It's just what I'm living for, and I know I ain't gonna die till I've done it. Some lives for one thing and some for another, but that's my job. I ain't been in no haste, but I'm not old yet, and that man is in good health. I'd like to see a little of the world before I takes chances on leaving it sudden, and moreover, somebody's got to take care of the old woman. But her time will come some of these days, and then his time will come, and probably mine. But I ain't caring about myself. When I get through with him, it won't make no difference about me. Josh was evidently in dead earnest. Miller recalled very vividly the expression he had seen twice on his patient's face during the journey to Wellington. He had often seen Josh's mother, old Aunt Millie, Silly Millie, the children called her, wandering aimlessly about the street, muttering to herself incoherently. He had felt a certain childish awe at the sight of one of God's creatures who had lost the light of reason and he had always vaguely understood that she was the victim of human cruelty, though he had dated it farther back into the past. This was his first knowledge of the real facts of the case. He realized, too, for a moment, the continuity of life, how inseparably the present is woven with the past, how certainly the future will be but the outcome of the present. He had supposed this old wound healed. The Negroes were not a vindictive people, if swayed by passion or emotion, they sometimes gave way to gusts of rage. These were of brief duration. Absorbed in the contemplation of their doubtful present and their uncertain future, they gave little thought to the past. It was a dark story, which they would willingly forget. He knew the time-worn explanation that the Ku Klux movement, in the main, was merely an ebullition of boyish spirits begun to amuse young white men by playing upon the fears and superstitions of ignorant negroes. Here, however, was its tragic side, the old wound still bleeding, the fruit of one tragedy the seed of another. He could not approve of Josh's application of the Mosaic law of revenge, and yet the incident was not without significance. Here was a negro who could remember an injury, who could shape his life to a definite purpose, if not a high or holy one. When his race reached the point where they would resent a wrong, there was hope that they might soon attain the stage where they would try, and, if need be, die, to defend a right. This man, too, had a purpose in life, and was willing to die that he might accomplish it. Miller was willing to give up his life to a cause. Would he be equally willing, he asked himself, to die for it? Miller had no prophetic instinct, to tell him how soon he would have the opportunity to answer his own question. But he could not encourage Josh to carry out this dark and revengeful purpose. Every worthy consideration required him to dissuade his patient from such a desperate course. 
"'You had better put away these murderous fancies, Josh,' he said seriously. "'The Bible says that we should forgive our enemies, "'bless them that curse us, "'and do good to them that despitefully use us.' "'Yes, sir, I've learnt all that in Sunday school, "'and I've heard the preachers say it time and time again. "'But it appears to me that this forgetfulness and forgiveness "'is mighty one-sided. "'The white folks don't forgive nothing the niggers does. "'They got up to Ku Klux, they said, "'on account of the carpet-baggers. "'They've been talking about the carpet-baggers ever since, "'and they appears to forget all about the Ku Klux. "'But I ain't forgot. "'The niggers has been trained to forgiveness.' and for fear they might forget how to forgive, the white folks gives them something new every now and then to practice on. A white man can do what he wants to a nigger, but the minute the nigger gets back at him, up goes the nigger, and don't come down till somebody cuss him down. If a nigger gets a office, or the race appears to be prospering too much, the white folks up and kills a few, so that the rest can keep on forgiving and being thankful that they're left alive. Don't talk to me about these white folks. I knows him, I does. If a nigger wants to get down on his marrow bones and eat dirt and call him master, he's a good nigger. There's room for him. But I ain't no white folks nigger, I ain't. I don't call no man master. I don't want nothing but what I work for, but I wants all of that. I never molest no white man, lessen he molest me first. But when the old woman dies, doctor, and I gets a good chance at that white man, they ain't no use talking, sir. There's going to be a mix-up in a funeral, or two funerals, or maybe more, if anybody's careless enough to get in the way. Josh, said the doctor, laying a cool hand on the other's brow, you're feverish and don't know what you're talking about. I shouldn't let my mind dwell on such things, and you must keep quiet until this arm is well, or you may never be able to hit anyone with it again. Miller determined that when Josh got better, he would talk to him seriously and dissuade him from this dangerous design. He had not asked the name of Josh's enemy, but the look of murderous hate which the dust-begrimmed tramp of the railway journey had cast at Captain George McBain rendered any such question superfluous. McBain was probably deserving of any evil fate which might befall him, but such a revenge would do no good, would right no wrong. While every such crime committed by a colored man would be imputed to the race, which was already staggering under a load of obloquy because, in the eyes of a prejudiced and undiscriminating public, it must answer as a whole for the offenses of each separate individual. To die in defense of the right was heroic. To kill another for revenge was pitifully human and weak. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. End of chapter 12. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.